This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. Search To Die For in your podcast app to follow the show. In May of 1925, Paris was abuzz with the promise of summer. Flowers bloomed, birds chirped, and lovers walked the streets arm in arm. In the center of the city, five businessmen from the iron salvage industry walked into the chic Hotel de Crillon. They had all received a summons from the Deputy Director General of the Ministry of Posts and Telegraphs for a top-secret meeting. The men waited in the plush lobby, exchanging nervous looks. They wondered what was so sensitive that it couldn't be discussed in a government building? But before they had time to exchange theories, the deputy director appeared. He was dressed in an impeccably fashionable suit, and his mustache and beard were groomed just so. The only feature marring his otherwise coiffed appearance was a long, thin scar that ran along the left side of his face. As the men sat down together, the director beckoned to the waiter to bring them all drinks. Once they'd settled, beverages in hand, he leaned in close, speaking in hushed tones. He had a matter of great secrecy to discuss. The director pursed his lips and paused for a long moment. Once he saw that he'd captured each man's attention, he continued. The Eiffel Tower was going to be torn down, and one of the gathered men would win the lucrative contract to do the honors. There was just one catch to this highly classified deal. The director wasn't a government official at all. His name was Victor Lustig, a renowned conman in both America and Europe. And he didn't oversee the Eiffel Tower, nor were there any plans to actually tear the landmark down. But none of this mattered. Lustig had the awestruck businessmen in the palm of his hand. And by the end of the year, Victor Lustig didn't just sell the Eiffel Tower. He managed to do it twice. Lustig 
Welcome to Con Artists, a podcast original. I'm Alastair Murden. Every week, we peel back the layers of history's greatest deceptions and tell the stories of the hustlers, swindlers, and fraudsters that orchestrated them. I'll dive into their psychology, break down their tricks, and explain why anyone might fall for a con. You can find episodes of Con Artists and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Con Artists for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Con Artists in the search bar. At Parcast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help us. This week, we're discussing Victor Lustig, a European con artist who succeeded in selling the Eiffel Tower to unsuspecting marks twice. We'll learn how an early career in crime brought him to the United States and how, after World War I, Lustig set his sights on Paris. There, he pulled off one of the most innovative scams in the history of con artistry. Next week, we'll follow Lustig back to America, where his masterful counterfeiting wreaked havoc on the American economy. We'll also discuss his daring escape from jail and how he finally met his fate in the infamous Alcatraz prison. Count Victor Lustig was known as one of the smoothest conmen who ever lived. Operating in the early 1920s, Lustig was exceptionally skilled at elaborate business scams that netted him hundreds of thousands of dollars. He had a special talent for duping his marks. He often managed to trick his victims so thoroughly they never realized they'd been had. As his reputation grew, however, Lustig found himself on the run, struggling to stay one step ahead of the police, but almost always managing to elude arrest. Reports claim the conman was apprehended nearly 50 times throughout his life, though he was frequently released due to a lack of evidence. Even when he was finally caught, Lustig slipped from the authorities' grasp one last time before being locked away in Alcatraz for good. In reality, Count Victor Lustig was an adopted false identity. Accounts of Lustig's real name and circumstances surrounding his upbringing vary, but in all likelihood, he was born in 1890 in a small town called Hastine in what we now know as the Czech Republic. Very little is known about Lustig's childhood in Hastine, when he was at the height of his criminal career, Lustig claimed that his father was the Burgomaster or mayor of the town, a title that would put his family solidly in the middle class. However, prison records from his time on Alcatraz state that Lustig came from poverty. A number of studies have found that children raised in poverty will face negative repercussions later in life. Oftentimes, this can mean they're more susceptible to depression or have a higher risk of physical ailments than their counterparts. But psychologists Willem Frankhaus and Carolina de Veerd from the Radboud University in the Netherlands found that these children also tend to develop certain advantageous skills. 
Frank Hausch and De Wirt concluded that children coming from disadvantaged backgrounds were better at detecting threats, recalling negative events, and reading people's intentions. Regardless of his upbringing, we do know that Lustig was an intelligent child who started running cons at an early age. Before he hit his teenage years, he'd already become a proficient pickpocket, had tried his hand at rigged card games, and even burglary. But Lustig wasn't just street smart. As a child, he was also incredibly academic. And soon, his high marks earned him a place in a prestigious German boarding school, where he became fluent in German, English, Italian, and French. But young Lustig's education came to an early halt in secondary school. Around the time he was 16 in 1906, he dropped out of school and cut off all ties with his family for unknown reasons. With nothing to tether him, Lustig then moved to France, where he quickly settled into the bohemian life of an artist. At the time, Paris was a thriving metropolis for creative types, but the lifestyle proved harder to maintain without a source of reliable income. To support himself, Lustig started engaging in petty theft until he realized how much money there was to be had in small-time crime. Gambling cons were what excited him the most. Soon, he was running the same card tricks he pulled as a kid. He made a point of studying the most popular games, like poker, bridge, and billiards. In fact, he was so thorough in his education that he became one of the best amateur billiard players in the city. But in the early days, Lustig's brazen ways didn't always earn him extra cash. In fact, more than once he found himself in a great deal of trouble, particularly when it came to women. After one particularly lucky winning streak in 1909, the 19-year-old conman felt untouchable. He started flirting with another player's girlfriend, but the other man noticed and flew into a rage. He swung a knife at Lustig. The blade missed his throat, but succeeded in opening the left side of his face, from his temple to right above his mouth. The cut left a scar that became Lustig's most defining feature. The incident was a powerful lesson for Lustig to keep his professional and personal life separate, and the scar served to remind him of the consequences of doing otherwise. Now spooked by the Parisian underworld, Victor Lustig decided to move on to greener, less violent pastures. And, as he soon realized, those pastures lie not on land, but at sea. Specifically, on transatlantic ocean liners. These ships carried a host of wealthy passengers between Europe and America, many of whom were newly rich, Lustig's preferred target. New money often meant that those who possessed it had everything to prove. They had just entered the leisure class and were all too eager to demonstrate they knew how to live well and live large. And therefore, they were more willing to recklessly spend their money and, most importantly, more likely to gamble. Lustig took full advantage of this. 
He began his new career as a transatlantic scammer by choosing a new identity, Count Victor Lustig. It was his first documented use of the title, but certainly not the last. At the time, ocean liners varied greatly in speed and style. The higher-end ships, like the doomed Titanic, could travel from New York to Ireland in just four days. But a slower ship could take anywhere from 12 to 14 days to make the same voyage. In that time, Lustig had nearly two weeks to play poker, bridge, and other card games with the restless rich. However, he always managed to save his big win until the end of the trip, after lulling his marks into complacency over the course of the long journey. Lustig would feign surprise and call it luck, promising the other players the chance to play for their money back. But before they could, the ship would conveniently dock and the passengers would never see the smooth-talking count or their money ever again. After a couple weeks running the scam, Lustig realized he wasn't the only passenger sticking around after port. Another mysterious man appeared to be scamming passengers too. Nicky Arnstein, a German-born con artist who was slightly older than Lustig. The two became fast friends and started exchanging tricks of the trade. At this point, Lustig's approach to card cons was fairly straightforward. He would simply sit down at a table and let his victims come to him. Arnstein, however, had a much more elaborate and intentional system. He would take time to single out his mark, someone who was rich and eager to show it. Then, once he found his man, he laid the trap. Arnstein would approach his victim and befriend him without any mention of gambling. When the mark suggested a friendly card game, Arnstein would, at first, resist. It was only after they insisted that Arnstein would explain that he was a professional gambler, and if they played, he might clean his new friend out. This, of course, only made the mark more interested in playing. He wanted to know if he could beat a career gambler. To further dial up the mark's interest, Arnstein would continue to refuse a game for days, holding out until the last night of the journey. Then, he would finally give in to the mark's pressure. Then, in one fell swoop, Arnstein would win an outrageous sum off him, sometimes as much as $30,000, more than $700,000 today. And he didn't even need to up the stakes. More often than not, Arnstein's mark was already hooked by the challenge and eager to throw down an absurd amount of their wealth to prove their worth. Lustig learned an extremely important lesson from Arnstein. People were far more susceptible to being conned if he invested the time in creating a connection, even more so if he was able to make them desperate to prove themselves. Lustig and Arnstein worked the ocean liners together for several years, pulling in thousands of dollars with each leg of the journey. But in 1914, just when it seemed like the money would never stop, World War I broke out. The war put an end to transatlantic travel for almost anyone who wasn't a soldier. And soon, the 24-year-old Lustig found himself back 
in Paris. The city was hit especially hard by the war. German raids and bombings were common and rationing was quickly implemented as the fighting escalated. It's unlikely that Lustig ever enlisted in the war effort. Upon his return, he resumed his bohemian lifestyle, living off the money he'd made on the ocean liners and occasionally returning to the gambling dens of his youth. Lustig spent the next five years in Paris, waiting out the war and longing to come back to the United States. He'd grown fond of Americans while on the boats, their warmth, their company, and, of course, their excessive wealth. And after the war was over, he resolved to make his way back stateside, where the real conning could begin. Coming up, Count Victor Lustig moves to New York, where his cons grow more elaborate and more profitable. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now back to the story. In 1919, 29-year-old Victor Lustig was an expert gambler and well on his way to becoming a master con artist. He had spent several years swindling transatlantic passengers out of their money with the help of his partner, Nicky Arnstein. And in the aftermath of World War I, Lustig emerged a wealthy man with an impressive criminal skill set. But despite his comfortable lifestyle in Paris, Lustig yearned to return to the United States, where he believed there was even more money to be made. As soon as the war was over, he boarded a ship and headed for New York City. His timing couldn't have been better if he tried. It was the cusp of the Roaring Twenties, and the criminal underworld was booming. After the war, the country was suddenly flush with cash. The rise of manufacturing and the increase in weapon sales gave the American economy a lucrative boost. And when prohibition came into effect on January 16, 1920, much of that money found its way into the illegal speakeasies that popped up throughout the states. Organized crime spread and the criminal underworld became far more active. It was the perfect place for Lustig to set up shop and get to work on more cons. Lustig reunited with Nicky Arnstein in the Big Apple, who introduced him to several criminal contacts in both New York and Chicago. At the time, Arnstein was working for Arnold Rothstein, a crime boss best known for fixing the 1919 World Series. When Lustig arrived in America, Rothstein was planning an ambitious operation to steal securities from Wall Street. He was specifically interested in Liberty Bonds, which the American government sold to citizens to help pay for the war effort. Because they were backed by the government, they had a guaranteed return. Arnstein enlisted the newly arrived Lustig in the enterprise, and over the span of 18 months, 
the group stole more than $5 million in Liberty Bonds, more than $60 million today. The police ultimately caught and convicted Nicky Arnstein, and he was sent to Leavenworth Prison for three years. But by that time, Lustig, who had managed to fly under the radar during the whole operation, had already moved on. He had his sights set on a very different kind of asset, a foreclosed farm. In the winter of 1921, 31-year-old Count Victor Lustig arrived in Salina, Kansas, with a specific goal in mind. He was going to buy the Marston Farm. The farm was known to be barren, unprofitable, and had gone into foreclosure several months prior, meaning it was now owned by the local American savings bank. Tormit Green, the president of the bank, was at a loss. He couldn't get anyone interested in the property, and he was getting anxious about how to handle the situation. Then came a knock on the door. There, on his doorstep, in the middle of Kansas, was an impeccably dressed European gentleman. But not just any European, a count. Green couldn't quite place the Count's accent when he introduced himself, but he told the banker that he was interested in purchasing some property. He explained that his family had recently lost all their money in the war, and he was looking for a fresh start in the United States. Like many Americans before him, he hoped to make his living off the land and earn back his family's wealth and prestige. And so, he was interested in buying a farm. Specifically, the Marston Farm. Green couldn't believe his ears. No one was interested in the Marston Farm, much less European nobility. The banker was all too happy to show Lustig the property and explain its many hidden charms carefully skirting around its troubles. Green had excuses prepared for why the farm hadn't sold and why it went into foreclosure in the first place. But the Count didn't seem interested in the property's previous luck. He assured Green that he was eager to throw himself wholeheartedly into the enterprise and offered $22,000 for the whole farm. Far more money than Green could have dreamed. But Lustig wasn't finished. He had all $22,000 with him. He showed Green a suitcase full of Liberty Bonds, his cut of the job in New York. The sight of thousands of dollars laid out right before his eyes was all the banker needed. He happily accepted the deal on sight. And with that, Lustig hooked his mark. Now it was time to lay his final trap. Liberty bonds could not be readily used in a transaction like bills and banknotes. They simply represented cash. So as they were finalizing the deal, Lustig made a simple request. Would Green's bank be willing to help him with some startup capital? Lustig assured Green that he had another $10,000 worth of Liberty bonds in his hotel, but no cash. If the bank could exchange the bonds for actual money for Lustig, it would help sustain him until the farm was up and running. Green was too thrilled with the potential sale to refuse the favor. 
Green agreed to bring the cash to Lustig's hotel later that day, and they would finish signing all the paperwork for the farm. Then, Green would hand off the cash in exchange for the bonds. At the hotel that afternoon, the men drank to their business. Green felt hugely relieved about the sale and imbibed more than usual. This ended up being an expensive mistake. He didn't check the suitcase full of Liberty Bonds Lustig had given him on his way out. It was only after Green returned to the bank that he realized he'd exchanged $10,000 in cash for a suitcase of old newspapers. Green raced back to the hotel, but Lustig was already gone, and the money with him. Green had lost the deed to the Marston farm and $10,000, almost $150,000 today. In his early 30s, Lustig continued pulling off cons like these while in the United States, exchanging bonds for real cash, taking advantage of people in desperate situations, and occasionally leaving a trail of devastation in his wake. But no matter where he went, Lustig presented himself as a man of class and luxury, thanks to a cognitive bias called fundamental attribution error. By doing so, he gained people's trust. According to consumer psychologist Dr. Peggy Sue LaRose, the fundamental attribution error explains the tendency for us to overlook the factors that might have played into another person's success. Instead, we commonly ascribe an individual's good fortune to innate abilities, such as intelligence or business acumen. However, this means we often don't consider less admirable possibilities, such as inherited wealth, or in Lustig's case, scam tactics and amorality. Whenever Lustig opened up shop in a new town, people often assumed that his riches were well-deserved, and therefore he was a reputable businessman whom they could trust. Many were drawn to Lustig because they wanted what he had. Essentially, they wanted in on the secret of how to get rich quick. But what they didn't know was their money was the secret. Around 1923 to 1924, 33-year-old Lustig was on a trip to Montreal, Canada, when he found the perfect mark in Linus Merton, an elderly banker from Vermont. Bankers, Lustig realized, were in the business of gaining as much cash as quickly as possible. Their financial ruthlessness was something Lustig knew well. They were exactly the kind of mark that would take risks with their money if there was a profit to be had. So Lustig set about luring Linus Merton in. First, Lustig needed to earn Merton's trust, so he hired a pickpocket to steal the old man's wallet and bring it to him. Then, after two days, he called Merton and informed him that he'd found the wallet, but would only agree to hand it over after he confirmed everything that was inside. This, from the get-go, established Lustig as trustworthy in Merton's eyes. The banker was eager to thank Lustig in any way he could, but Lustig remained cold and withholding, keeping him at arm's length. 
This only made Merton more eager to befriend the con artist, and after a couple of days, Lustig appeared to finally give in, joining the banker and his wife for dinner. Over the next week, Lustig opened up more to the couple, hinting at his massive wealth, but never revealing where it came from. Eventually, Merton got so curious that he asked Lustig outright how he'd come by all that money. Lustig hemmed and hawed, then brought Merton in on his secret. He had an informant at a horse track who told him which horses to bet on before the race results came in. Lustig's story about the horse track informant was actually a popular con artist scam known as The Wire. The ability to send messages over wires was still fairly new in the 1920s, and it was an easy technology to take advantage of. The trick involved two people, an informant on the racetrack and a con artist in the betting ring. The informant would see the winner of the race in real time, then call the con artist to tell them the results before sending them wide, and more importantly, before the bets were closed. That way, the con artist could put their money on the horse they knew was going to win at the 11th hour before the results were announced. After the fact, the pair would split the winnings. Merton was immediately intrigued by the idea. After days of persuading a faux-reluctant Lustig to show him how it worked, the con artist brought Merton to his bookie joint. The moment Merton stepped into the place, he was mesmerized. The room was abuzz with activity. Tellers tallying up numbers at lightning speed, gamblers placing huge bets and winning or losing big, depending on the outcome of the race. When Merton left that day, he was exhilarated and begged Lustig to let him in on the action. But the entire bookie joint, the environment he'd found so thrilling, was essentially a stage play, an elaborate ruse designed to make Merton part with his money. All the gamblers, tellers, and employees were hired by Lustig to create an atmosphere of excitement. The telegraphs coming in came from nowhere. Even the races they reported were fake. But it was more than enough to fool the old man. For two days, Merton got access to Lustig's insider information on the races, and he received enormous returns on his bets. Then, on the third day, Lustig slyly convinced Merton that one big bet would bring in significantly more money than the smaller ones they'd been placing. He persuaded Merton to bet $30,000 on the next race, almost $450,000 today. Then, with everything on the line, Lustig went in for the kill. He orchestrated a miscommunication from his informant. With exaggerated horror, he informed Merton that they'd bet on the wrong race. Merton was shocked and heartbroken. Lustig put on his best performance to act as if he felt the very same. The elderly banker left the joint thinking he'd lost the money fair and square. He never even realized he'd been conned. With Merton's money in hand, 
Lustig closed up the fake bookie joint and skipped town on to find his next payday. But for every mark that remained ignorant, Lustig left behind a handful of victims that were all too keen to go to the police. By 1925, the accusations against him were piling up. Whispers of a con artist posing as a count eventually made their way to the authorities. That May, 35-year-old Lustig realized it might be prudent to spend some time away from America. So he returned to Paris and got to work planning his biggest and most successful con yet. Up next, Victor Lustig sets his sights on the Eiffel Tower and how to sell it. Now back to the story. By the spring of 1925, 35-year-old Victor Lustig had spent six years running cons in the United States. In that time, he went from operating simple card gambling scams to devising elaborate scenarios to swindle his marks out of tens of thousands of dollars. Lustig's many fraudulent ventures meant that he kept a suitcase with a false bottom full of passports and bundles of bribe money. But even that wasn't enough to keep him safe from the authorities. His scams in America had caught up with him and the police wouldn't be far behind. So, in May, Lustig decided to bid a fond farewell to the US and return to Paris, the city of his youth. But this time, he didn't go alone. In America, Lustig had met a partner, a con artist who could match his metal, dapper Dan Collins. When Lustig made his way back to Paris, Collins went with him. Collins was a fierce scammer in his own right. In his 20s, he would often catch married couples cheating on their spouses and shake them down for money in exchange for silence. His cons were often short-term, brutal, and effective, while Lustig's were long, non-violent, and involved higher stakes. Collins was Lustig's perfect complement. Lustig was far calmer than Collins, which is part of what made him so successful. Instead of arriving at a location with a scheme in mind, he tailored his cons to his marks. This usually involved some waiting around to discover the perfect scam and the perfect mark. But his patience always paid off. Lustig needed a con that his marks wouldn't just fall for, but something that made them complicit in illegal or at least morally dubious behavior. According to the National White Collar Crime Center, or NW3C, this culpability ensured that they wouldn't go to the police, which Lustig was keen to avoid. But even more so, Lustig wanted to find a mark who cared greatly about his reputation, someone who would be embarrassed to be conned in the first place. This would allow Lustig to escape unscathed and to continue pulling similar scams until someone finally gathered the courage to report him. In fact, this phenomenon of victims failing to go to the authorities out of shame or embarrassment is exactly what most con artists rely on. According to a study done by the NW3C in 2002, 
only 7% of white-collar crime victims go to the authorities. But even without statistics, Lustig understood that finding the right victim, the one who wouldn't dare reveal their shame to the police, was of the utmost importance. So while Collins was eager to get to work, Lustig encouraged patience. He spent his days lounging in the lobby of the Hotel de Creon, reading newspapers and chatting politely with the hotel's other guests. But he was also paying close attention to the Parisian scene. It had been six years since Lustig had been in the city, and a lot had changed in that time. Finally, after a week of careful observation, Lustig turned to Collins with a plan. He was going to sell the Eiffel Tower. In 1925, the Eiffel Tower was hardly the Parisian symbol the world has come to know. For many French citizens, it was considered an eyesore. Editorial pieces in the city's newspapers complained that the maintenance costs were outweighing the tower's usefulness. It was articles like this that gave Lustig his idea. Collins, understandably, was hesitant. Who were they going to sell the tower to? And to what end? Would people even believe that the Eiffel Tower belonged to them? But for every question, Lustig had an answer. First, he hired a forger to create stationery and official paperwork, establishing him as the Deputy Director General of the Ministry of Posts and Telegraphs. It was a fake title, of course, but the position sounded bureaucratic enough to be part of the government, though just vague enough that his duties were unclear. Then, he started compiling a list of potential marks, specifically businessmen who worked in the iron salvage business. Lustig planned to enlist the services of a handful of scrap metal dealers and have each one place a bid to tear the tower down. The chosen proposal would be paid to the government in exchange for winning the job. It was a profitable undertaking for a scrap metal dealer. After all, the Eiffel Tower was made of 7,000 tons of iron, worth close to 7 million francs, an amount that may have reached $100 million today. Any man who scrapped the Eiffel Tower would be filthy rich far beyond the rest of his days. That May of 1925, Lustig chose five businessmen and summoned them to the Hotel de Creon. He swore them to secrecy before revealing the controversial news that the tower was going to be torn down. The men were disinclined to believe him at first, but Lustig was insistent. He used the newspaper articles complaining about the Eiffel Tower's exorbitant maintenance costs as proof. But Lustig had also come armed with a comprehensive knowledge of the structure's history. He explained to the businessman that the tower was only ever supposed to be a temporary monument, erected for the Paris Exposition of 1889. The original plan was to have it torn down after 20 years. By 1925, that plan was almost 20 years overdue. To further convince the five men, Lustig arranged a field trip. He drove them all to the Eiffel Tower in a limousine. 
Then he took them all the way to the top, flashing his government badge to every security guard he met. He let the metal dealers examine the iron up close and personal. The tour did the trick. In the presence of the grand and imposing tower, each of the businessmen was immediately eager to be chosen for the project. Soon, they all submitted bids to Lustig for the privilege. But what the men didn't realize was that it didn't matter what their bids entailed. After observing the five men, Lustig already knew who his mark would be. He'd settled on André Poisson, a newly rich businessman who is extremely conscientious of his poor background. Poisson was often snubbed by the wealthy elite he was so desperate to be a part of and, as such, had a giant chip on his shoulder. In Lustig's mind, Poisson was the perfect mark. Someone so concerned about how they're perceived by their peers, they would never go to the cops and admit they'd fallen for a scam. When Lustig delivered the news that he'd been chosen for the job, Poisson was delighted. That same weekend, he scrambled to collect the money he'd proposed in his bid and even mortgaged his villa to ensure he had enough. By that Monday, he was ready to pay his bid in full. 100,000 francs. But Dan Collins was concerned about the scheme. He came to Lustig and told him that Poisson had been in contact with him over the entire weekend and was asking questions. He was getting cold feet. After all, it was a ridiculous proposition. Surely, if the Eiffel Tower was being torn down, all of Paris would have heard about it. And on top of that, Poisson had began to wonder why all his meetings with Lustig had taken place in a hotel instead of an official government building. But the con artist was already two steps ahead. On the day they arranged to sign the official paperwork, Lustig approached Poisson and delicately implied that in order to execute the deal, he would need to offer him a bribe. Surprisingly, this put Poisson back at ease. It was so common for Parisian government officials to take bribes from their contractors that it wouldn't have felt like a true business deal without an extra commission on top. Poisson was convinced that Lustig couldn't be conning him if he was asking for money outright. And so Poisson, now as confident as ever, handed over the bid money, signed all the papers, and waited for the headlines announcing the news that the tower was going to be torn down. But of course, after the deal, Lustig and Collins escaped to Vienna with the money, and Poisson was left with nothing. In Austria, Lustig and Collins lied low, reveling in their new wealth. For weeks, they lived in luxury, indulging in the most expensive foods, decadent wines, and beautiful women. They kept their eyes on the newspapers, waiting for the story to break. But with each passing day, there was nothing but radio silence on the subject. Lustig and Collins were shocked and delighted. 
Lustig chose Poisson for his insecurities, and, as it turned out, those insecurities were ultimately what kept him from getting caught. After a month had gone by, 35-year-old Lustig knew Poisson would stay quiet on the subject forever. But while Collins was ready to cash in on their lucky break and bail, Lustig's gears were already turning. The con had proven successful once, and in a big way. Not to mention that Lustig still had all the stationery and paperwork left over from the first time they pulled the con. If they'd sold the Eiffel Tower once, what was stopping them from selling it again? So Lustig and Collins returned to Paris once more, carefully, and using the same strategy, the con men tried to pull off the exact same scam. And shockingly, it appeared they would succeed. However, before they could collect the final bid, the mark did his research. Realizing that the proposition was all an absurd scam, he went to the police. Now, with the authorities hot on his tail once again, Lustig and Collins fled France for good. In an ironic twist of fate, Lustig found himself running back to the same country he'd hastily fled just months earlier. America. Thanks for listening to Con Artists. We'll be back next week with part two of Victor Lustig's story. We'll follow the con man as he returns to America and builds a counterfeiting empire that threatens the country's economy. We'll also learn how Lustig was ultimately betrayed to the police and his daring escape attempts before he was locked away on Alcatraz. For more information on Victor Lustig, amongst the many sources we used, we found The Man Who Sold the Eiffel Tower by James Johnson extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Con Artists and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite podcast originals like Con Artists for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Con Artists on Spotify, just open the app and type Con Artists in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. I'll see you next time. Con Artists was created by Max Cutler and is a Parcast Studios original. It is executive produced by Max Cutler. Sound designed by Michael Langsner with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, Isabella Way and Joel Stein. This episode of Con Artist was written by Liz Dorovitsen, with writing assistance by Abigail Cannon. I'm Alastair Murden.